we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to the universe next door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. This show is a ministry of the C.S. Lewis Society and supported by gifts of listeners just like you. Join us as we seek to see a generation captivated and transformed by the truth of Christianity. This is the universe next door. This is Nick Shalman, and today we are going to be continuing the second part of our new series on ethical and cultural issues. Uh, there are no shortage of those issues and dilemmas today, so we're going to try to cover basically all of the major things that we can come up with and all of the major things you can come up with. So send us an, an email at information at apologetics.org uh, with anything that you can think of or anything that you think you'd have a hard time answering if someone were to ask you about. Uh, maybe something you've been thinking about or struggling with, uh, maybe something that you see a lot of. And so today we're going to have Sean McDowell on to talk about what the Bible has to say on sexuality and on homosexuality. Uh, I'm going to be joined by Mike Sherrard, our president here at the C.S. Lewis Society. Now, Mike and Sean know each other. They had actually had a, a sleepover party years ago that I was not invited to, uh, but that's a story for another day. So we're going to be getting into what a Christian's perspective around uh, sexuality biblically should look like and how we can sort of apply that and how we can use it as a lens to see everything through as our worldview. So you're going to hear some stories in this episode. You're going to hear some, uh, I guess, some some real life advice on what we can do when we get into a discussion uh, regarding some of these issues and how we can go about it as Christian believers, putting Christ first uh, always in everything. That's really what the series is all about. How can we look at all of these different uh, cultural issues or ethical issues and dilemmas while keeping Christ at the center and using him as our uh, sort of as our gauge for everything. And so let's get into what the Bible has to say about sexuality with Dr. Sean McDowell. Dr. Sean McDowell is a Christian apologist who leads the Bible department at Capistrano Valley Christian Schools in California and is an associate professor in the Christian apologetics program at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. He has a PhD in apologetics and worldview studies from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Sean is the author, co-author, or editor of over 20 books, including Evidence That Demands a Verdict, Chasing Love, and Coming Soon, A Rebel's Manifesto. He also hosts one of the top apologetics channels on YouTube. So check that out. If you haven't, Dr. Sean McDowell, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Nick. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. And Mike Sherrard, the president of the C.S. Lewis Society, who is also generally awesome, has written a couple books, including Cultural Apologetics and Why You Matter. Mike, how are you doing? I'm good, but man, if you're going to mention my books, <laughs> at least get the names right, dude. It's not Cultural Apologetics. What did I get wrong again? Apologetics. Cultural Apologetics. By I'm sorry, people. relational. I mean, dude, you're that's the one relational. More strike and you're no, fired, man. we keep talking about we're doing a series. Oh, no, not again. We're doing a series <laughs> on cultural apologetics, and it's been on the tip of my tongue. Can we just call your book Culture Apologetics until this yeah, is over? Paul might be bothered by that, but go right ahead and, and do that. Sean, man, thanks for coming on. It's good to see you, man. How are you and the family? Of course, man. We're doing We're doing well. Good to see you, too. And you cool. guys know each other a little bit. Obviously, this is my first time meeting Sean McDowell. I've met your father, Josh McDowell. It was very brief. 
Uh, but you guys have you you know each other a little bit. Mike has yeah. stayed at my house, man. We hang out. I was telling my youngest son, I'm like, you remember this guy, Mike? It was before COVID, so everything feels like 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, you. I don't remember the first time we met, but it's quite a few years back. Yeah, no, well, I I do, because you're a big deal, Sean. And I remember the first time <laughs> oh, I, I met you. <laughs> it was, I'd start, I mean, you know, years ago, I was doing work with Ratio Christie. And I mean, I'm... Literally uh, a no one in the apologetics world. I don't even, maybe I just finished my math. I don't know where I was at, but you just have always been very gracious, very helpful. There was no reason for you to take any time to either respond to my emails or answer the phone call. And, uh, you know, just since then, over the years, we've uh, turned into more of a friendship. But man, I've always just appreciated mm. cause your, your uh, graciousness your availability. And I know it's not just true of me. You do this for other people. And it's one of the things I like about you, Sean. And that's why we do this show is just to puff up people's heads. But you just have a, <laughs> you just, you really do care about other people. You are committed to seeking the kingdom and helping other Christ followers do that. So I've always appreciated that about you, man. And glad we're friends. Well, very kind. Thanks for saying that. Well, now is a good time to ask this. Uh, I, I'm a youth pastor, and it seems like in the world of apologetics, there's not nearly enough aimed toward high school students, especially. And this has been like a large portion of your life and your ministry. What is kind of, uh, just as a youth pastor, I want to know what's motivated you to do that, first of all. And second of all, thank you for doing that, because you've been a big help to, both to me and my students. You know, it's interesting, Nick. When I wrote my first book that came out in 2006, the Christian Research Journal reviewed it. And they said it's one of a few but growing number of resources for students in apologetics. Nobody would say that today who knew what was going on because now there's a ton of resources, whether it's YouTube channels, whether it's TikTokers, whether it's books, curricula. There's a plethora of resources for students, which is a pretty exciting trend to see. You have a new book coming out on July 5th called A Rebel's Manifesto. Um, first of all, can you explain the title? Like, what exactly is a manifesto? We we hear this term all the time today. And what do you mean by rebel? So when people, if they happen to know me or my ministry, probably the worst, the first word that would not, that wouldn't come to mind would be rebel. Most people would think, oh yeah, Sean McDowell, that guy's a rebel. And partly I'm doing this to get people to pause and rethink what they mean by rebel. So I was reading this article recently that talked about how rock music going back to the 50s and 60s, you know, et cetera, to the early 2000s, really captured the, the kind of the nature of a rebel, sometimes against racial injustice, uh, sometimes against the nuclear family also, sometimes against traditional norms, sometimes against war. Rock was kind of the face of the rebel. Well, it also got me thinking, well, what, what does it mean to be a rebel today? It's not to fight against the system the way people did in the past. Actually, the rebel today is somebody goes, you know what? I'm not going to cancel you. I'm going to build a relationship with you. I'm going to be charitable towards you. I'm going to listen to you and try to understand your perspective Mm. and reach out to you in love. Ironically, that's the rebel because everybody else is competing for hits and views and attention. And you do that by trying to be more shocking than the person before, which is a little bit of what rock music did. But now that everybody has a platform, everybody's doing that. 
It's actually the rebel who goes the other direction and I think shows kindness and graciousness more in line with how Jesus approached people. Yeah, now, that's Mike, good. Uh, just real quick, you have a gu- you have a guitar in your wall. Do you want to defend yourself with the rock portion of that? <laughs> <laughs> man, Nick, just ask good questions, dude. What the heck, man? I had a really nice follow-up for Sean. Now I forgot it. Uh, yes, just I have guitars, ahead. and yes, I like rock music. I'll break out yellow lead yellow lead better solo here in just a second. Uh, but so so rebel, that's a that's a neat idea. So rebel, like Jesus was a rebel. Uh, you know, Tom Holland, not Spider-Man, but the, the historian who's not a Christian, right? He writes, what's that book? Is it called Dominion? I think it's the big, big, big book where he talks about the history of Christianity, its impact on the world. And he talks about how violent Rome was and that mm. Rome invented the crucifixion for a couple of reasons. One, it was just horrific, but it was also a display of their power. They would do this, you know, the city's edge, and it was kind of like a warning to the rest of the world don't cross Rome or you go to the cross. It's what you did to your enemies. You exploited them. You trampled upon them. You made a spectacle of them for the world to see. And here was Jesus in the very nature God in human flesh, (laughs) having all of the power that there is. And what he did to his enemies was to love them to go to the cross for them rather than put them upon the cross. And so Tom Holland, who's not a follower of Jesus as a historian, just remarks about how how much of a rebel that was, how it just flipped the world upside down because because of that love. So that's where you're coming at it, that that title of Rebels Mm. Manifesto. That's that's good stuff right there. Mm. So, Dr. Sean, I've also noticed that you cover like a very wide range of topics. A couple of them we'll get to in a second. But how has this changed these these issues just over, let's say, the last five, 10 years? I know that you teach a high school class, you're your college professor. And so you see this stuff firsthand. How have these issues sort of changed or maybe evolved or devolved? Well, this book is actually an update of the book that I was mentioning earlier called Ethics with an X. And that book had 10 chapters. Why? Because in my mind, when I first started, every book should have 10 chapters. I really had no more (laughs) thoughtfulness to it than that. And then I went to update this, was like, wait a minute. I shouldn't just start with a number. I need to look at the issues that students are really dealing with and address them. So I had a chapter on homosexuality, but there was no need to have a chapter on transgender did not have a chapter on things like artificial intelligence are completely new. Didn't have a chapter on suicide. That was obviously mm. an issue then, but it's taken off and is a massive issue. Mm. Pornography was emerging in the early 2000s because the internet was there, but I would argue it has completely taken off. Immigration is a huge issue. And honestly, as I look back, one chapter I didn't have that was eye-opening for me is I didn't have a chapter on race. And as I thought about that, I was like, why not? Well, the early 2000s, the conversation was different. But I also started realizing if even somebody who's a racial minority wrote a book on ethics, do you think they'd leave out a chapter on race? And the answer is no, of course not. Hmm. And I don't like the word, I don't know if I'd say I don't like, the word privilege is really loaded and just carries a lot of connotations with it. But it definitely hit me. I was like, wow, I have an advantage being in the minority race, not having to see myself through the lens of race. So I went back and was like, I need to have a chapter on this. So 
those are some of the big changes that have shifted, I think, in culture in about the past 15 to 17 years. So I wanted to start, before we kind of get into the idea of homosexuality, the idea of transgenderism, um, ideas that are just huge in our culture today, compared to even when I was in high school, which was, what, 10 years ago, you know, what does the Bible say about sexuality? So if I were to describe the current culture, I think two words come to mind, and those are curiosity and and chaos. Hmm. And this is especially relevant in the area of sexuality. So going back to Scripture as our solid grounding as believers, what is God's purpose for sex and sexuality? Well, there are three purposes for sex, I believe Scripture teaches. Number one, Genesis 1, is to make babies, procreation. That one is obvious, uh, number two, Genesis 2.24, is man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one, which is unity. Sex was designed for to bond a husband and wife together into one flesh. So procreation, unity. I think the third purpose of sex is one that many Protestants miss. And it really dawned on me when I read a lot of the theology of the body by Catholic writers such as Christopher West. I think the third purpose of sex is to foreshadow heaven, to anticipate heaven. Now, what I don't mean by that is that, as you see in certain strains of Islam, if you die in a jihad, you get 70 you know, dark-haired, dark-eyed virgins in heaven. That is distinct what I don't mean. What I do mean is in the Old Testament, sex was described, it would say that Adam knew his wife Eve, Abraham knew his wife Sarah. And in the Hebrew, that's yada. Sex was viewed through a relational lens, where in our culture, it's viewed almost primarily through a physical lens. So if you go to the garden, they were naked and they were unashamed. They could see one another for who they are. Well, when shame hits, what do we do? We hide and we cover ourselves up. Well, in sex, you are to uncover yourself and it's a way of knowing somebody, yada, and being known back in return. That's God's intent for it, that it's a kind of intimacy. Now, what I now we got to be careful not to confuse sex with intimacy. You can have sex with someone without being intimate. You can be intimate with somebody without having sex. But the mm. design of sex was to know and be known. It's one way of doing this without wearing a mask. So it foreshadows, and again, other ways can foreshadow heaven, but this is one way that God has given us to anticipate when we get to heaven, we can know God directly, we can know others directly, despite our faults and our failures and our insecurities, we can truly experience and be loved. So if I'm right about that, that's why Satan would be so intent on twisting sex, because if he can twist our understanding of sex, he can twist our understanding of heaven. So in some, I think God created sex to make babies uh, for unity and to anticipate heaven. You say, well, what about pleasure? Because that's exactly what many people argument. I think <laughs> pleasure is the motivation more than it is the purpose. It's the blessing from God and the motivation, just like food, the purpose of food is for nourishment. The motivation is God's given us chocolate and coffee and other things that taste good. So would you say that the way most, most people, Christians, non-Christians in general, we, we come at, we, we view sex just through the wrong lens, that there's a, a fuller way, a, a clearer way to, 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 to think about this, to consider it, 
And and it's like you, you start off in your book, Chasing Love, making it clear that this isn't a how-to book on love, relationships, or sex, but that you're you're really trying to cause us to consider a bigger a bigger bigger issue or see the bigger fuller picture, if you will, that involves loving God and loving your neighbor. Can you maybe just unpack that a little bit more? Because I think that is a, a a beautiful and helpful way to think about the topic of sex, as opposed to where we so often do it, just by focusing on the lines and how far is too far and, and things like that. I think that's exactly right. What's happened in the church is I think we've approached both sex and marriage taking our script more largely from the world and how the world sees it and defines it rather than from scripture. And I think this relates to what Paul says in Romans 12 too. He's like, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And conformed is the natural passive state that we find ourselves molded into. And I think that's happened to the church. So we're asking the wrong questions. So in this book, I'm trying to flip the script on students and say, The question we start with is not how far is too far, as important as that question is. The question we start with is what does it mean to love God? What does it mean to love other people? Because what we do with our sexuality is really an extension of the larger question of whether we're loving God or not. This is just an area that brings it to the surface, Mm. and I think it makes it very clear which script we're buying. So if we start with a question what does it mean to love God? Then we're going to, and what does it mean to love my neighbor? And by the way, love my neighbor in terms of body and in terms of soul. Then I think I'm going to approach the question, how far is too far very differently rather than how can I get away with this and push limits? The question that becomes, what do I do to protect this person? What do I do to honor this person? What do I do to respect this person? And when I wrote the book, Chasing Love, the point was not to give students a specific line because the Bible doesn't. And frankly, we all students would go straight to that line anyways, and then justify just going a little bit further. It's human nature. Rather, the Bible gives us principles and it gives us guidelines. And I'm trying to ask students questions to go then work them out in relationships with parents and youth pastors and other peers who also care about asking these questions. But I think we really need to flip the script, like you said, Mike. I think that's a really helpful way to think about this this issue. Because again, when it comes to talking about sexuality, often the challenge is to just love people. Just love people. Mm. Who are you to judge? Just love people. But taking a step Mm. back, and go, well, what does it mean to love God and love other people? That's that's the starting place. And that's that's really that's really helpful. So Sean, you also describe freedom and and you you point out that freedom is not living entirely without any sort of limitations or restrictions. Rather it's it's living within certain restrictions. For example, when a fish is out of water, they're not really free to do much except flop around and die. So there are certain restrictions to freedom. Now, what does it mean that God's plan for the restrictions on sex, so to speak, make us more free and not less? This is one of my favorite parts of the book, Chasing Love, because I think it gets to the heart of one of the biggest lies that all of us and a particular young people are tempted to believe, that freedom is doing whatever you want without restraint. I can't tell you how many dozens of times I've had conversations with Christian kids and non-Christian kids, and as a whole, they give the same response. Freedom is doing whatever you want without restraint. 
Well, once I start to poke at this, I think students realize that this is not what freedom really is. So hmm. well, let's ask the question, is freedom doing whatever you want? I'll let students, I'll say, imagine there's a husband who comes home, he's a dad from work all day. He doesn't really want to spend time with his kids, doesn't want to have dinner with his wife. He wants to go to his office alone and look at porn for hours. And he does it. Is he free? Mm. And the answer most students intuitively know is, no, he's not free. And, the, and why? He's doing what he wants, but he has the wrong wants. Now, that's a radical idea to this generation to tell them that they can have the wrong wants, mm. but they intuitively know it. So freedom's not doing what you want if you have the wrong wants. But second, freedom is also not living without restraint. I like to use an example of a piano, student A and student B. Student A sits down and goes, it's my piano. I can do whatever I want to. Pay, take a bat, bash it, wreck it, make a cool social media video, and it goes viral. It's my piano. I can do whatever I want. That's student A. Student B sits down and goes, oh, wait, I know the purpose of a piano, what it was designed for. And I've cultivated the discipline and the ability to play the piano according to its design and sits down and with restraint. By the way, every time you hit the right note, you restrain yourself from hitting every other one of the wrong notes. Plays Bach, Mozart, beautiful worship music. Maybe even plays Led Better by Pearl Jam, which is a beautiful song in its own way, by the way. What happens? So I'll tell students, I'll say, okay, they play beautiful music. Which student is more free? And they understand it's student B. If they don't get it, I'll say, okay, who's the freest basketball player on the planet? Someone can go out there and just chuck a ball at the rim? Or Stephen Curry, who's disciplined himself and can shoot from anywhere, anytime, any speed, yeah. and actually turn around and look at the crowd before it goes in because he knows it's going in. The answer is freedom's not doing what you want if you have the wrong wants. And freedom is not rejecting restraint. It's actually embracing the right restraint. So in a sense, freedom is having the capacity to do what is right. Freedom is having the strength to orient my life to reality. And reality is God's design. So yeah, it turns out, Nick, that we actually live according to God's design that we're more free. And let me just give you one, one more example that I think captures this. I'll say to students all, all the time, I'll say, what would happen if everybody in the world lived out the sexual ethic of Jesus? And by the way, when you ask that question, you have to define it for students because they might have some <laughs> faulty assumptions. Uh, yeah. And it's either, and the sexual ethic of Jesus is if you're single, which is a God-honoring way to live, you're not sexually active. If you're married, it's one man, one woman, one flesh, one lifetime. You're sexually active only to your spouse of the opposite sex. I'll write on the board. I'll say, how would the world be better, different, or the same if everybody lived this out? And very quickly, students start to realize, wow, there'd be no STDs. There'd be no pornography. There'd be no sex abuse. There would be no abortion because every child would be wanted, made in the image of God, conceived in the family unit. There'd be no coarse sexual humor. There'd be no divorce. The world would be an objectively better place and arguably more free if we knew and followed the sexual ethic of Jesus. That's really good. I think music, I think music and sports that you brought up are perfect to illustrate this. I love both music and sports. Obviously, you see that in 
played ball growing up and played mm-hmm. in college. And I think, and for many people, these become like addictive, all consuming kinds of uh, activities for people. And, and I get it because it is a true representation, I think, of the way life is and how God intended it, both within music and sports. There are confines. There are the rules of the game. As an athlete, you train yourself to be able to succeed in those in those areas, whether it's strength, speed, strategy, or whatever. But anybody that's ever played a sport or an instrument, you know that within these confines, there is endless creativity. But it's within the confines that the creativity mm. is meaningful and satisfying and if you've ever listened to kids pick up an instrument, it's painful because they don't know the rules and they just hit whatever <laughs> note they want and it's painful. Uh, similarly, you can imagine the absurdity to going out onto a field and there just being an assortment of bats and balls and lines and there's no rules and people are just out there running around spinning and throwing things. Can you imagine the ridiculousness of coming off that and somebody saying, man, great game. You're like, what? What? I just spun around and threw stuff. Yeah, but you did it so well. That's It's ridiculous. So <laughs> sports and music, for those of us that have participated in it, we, we understand the principle you're talking about here, the joy and the meaning that comes from creativity within some kind of confines. Before we move on, didn't you guys both play college basketball? Not me. You're a baseball guy, right, Mike? Yeah, but I, I, I wish... I would have sold my soul to basketball instead of baseball. <laughs> I, enjoy, if you could go I, back I enjoy basketball more than baseball, I think. Well, here's the difference between you and me. I'm sure people have looked at you and said, hey, did you play baseball? Nobody my entire life has ever looked at me and been like, were you a basketball player? Not hey, once. Man, <laughs> Do you ever go play a, a pickup game just to show them up? Oh, I during COVID, I played a ton with my son, and I was beating him and his buddies for a while, which brought me some joy. But then I hang it up for three months, and I go back, and my son looked at me. He's like, Dad, you are terrible. I mean, you lose it fast man, when you, you're you in your don't, mid-40s. You, you don't <laughs> have that old finished. man stroke. My dad had that. It didn't matter how infrequent he picked uh, up a basketball, because he, he played in high school himself. He didn't play in college. It didn't matter how long he had gone. But he had this old man stroke. You give him the ball, he's going to make that first shot every time. You don't have that? I am calling you old by doing that too, by the Mm. way. (laughs) Well, I was a little bit of a different player. I used quickness, craftiness. I was a point guard. So I can shoot. But that all that quickness and that stuff is just it's gone and in my mind it's there my body does not Well, hey, (laughs) next time we're somewhere with a basketball court, man, we got to go. We got to throw some down. You got it. Or a baseball diamond. Yeah, or a baseball we do that too. So now that we have uh, now that we have an idea of a biblical grounding for sexuality, uh, let's move on to the to the idea of homosexuality. Obviously, this is like probably the hot button issue in our society today, or at least one of like the top three. It's you you have a chapter in your book on homosexuality, and you tell a story of a girl named Rachel who was an atheist and who was a lesbian, 
And she had heard an argument for God's existence that didn't convince her, but it did make her sort of dig deeper. And she went on to befriend a girl who was a Christian and and taught her that God was actually fine with same-sex attraction. And Rachel, even as an unbeliever, recognized that this didn't seem right. And she was from Yale University, very intelligent woman, by the way. And so, Rachel, you say that Rachel knew that if she became a Christian, it meant saying no to same-sex romance. Now, of course, the obvious question is, from a, a biblical standpoint— why did Rachel have to say no to same-sex romance as a Christian? Well, I think we're back to the nature of freedom that we talked about a moment ago. Is there a God who has designed us to live a certain way? And does this God have commands that we ignore at our peril and we follow for our flourishing and our good? That's the heart of questions about sexuality. Is there a designer and has this designer revealed his plan for how we're supposed to live in all areas of our lives, including our bodies and including our sexuality. So Rachel was and is brilliant, obviously at Yale, quite the thinker. And she intuitively understood, as most people do, that if you become a follower of Jesus, you're submitting yourself to Jesus's worldview. Now, there are a lot of people today who are increasingly saying that the Bible is fine with same-sex unions And you're just not going to get there by scripture, I think, without twisting it, without misrepresenting it. Or I think, as a lot of people do, which frankly I think is more honest, is they'll say, hey, the scripture doesn't teach this, but we still think it's good and it's right nonetheless. I appreciate Mm. when people say that because they're at least being honest with what scripture teaches about same-sex unions and God's design for marriage. Well, Rachel understood that. She knew what the cost was. And if you read her book, Born Again This Way, there is a real relational struggle for her, which makes sense. You've grown up as an atheist. Uh, She defined herself as a lesbian. And so there was a lot, especially you're on Yale's campus. I mean, there's not going to be a ton of people telling you, hey, follow Jesus and understand the scriptures. So she is very raw and real with her struggles, but she just understood that Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. And that involves all areas of our lives, including our sexuality. Now, what's fascinating about her story is she is now married to a man. And she this is a whole nother story. But she kind of says, we had this impression that all of a sudden you have to be attracted to all men. She's like, first off, attraction mm-hmm. is not just physical. It can go far beyond that. And second, you don't have to be attracted to all men. If you're a woman and you want to get married, you just have to be attracted to one. <laughs> and she's ended up being attracted to a guy. They got married, and she's actually said having same-sex attraction has given her an advantage because she doesn't have a lot of the illusions that people adopt back to what we said earlier about marriage and knows she she has to work at it, knows she has to commit to it, and now has a a beautiful marriage. Would you say – because there's a lot of people within Christianity that would say this is an issue where we can disagree, that you can have some traditions that – uh, adopt a uh, just that same sex marriage homosexual se- you know lifestyle is perfectly within the bounds of Christianity. Would you say it's a gospel issue that it's it's so central that it it is inevitably going to be a dividing issue and it's 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 just a gospel at its very nature it's a gospel a gospel issue. Mike, recently I had a progressive Christian on my YouTube channel. We were talking about this because he's written a book on 
how the Bible is fine with same-sex unions. And at the end, we both got a question that said, what's at stake in this debate? And who's it, who's it worse for? And he said to me, he goes, I think it's way worse for you because if you get to heaven, God is going to be like, why did you put this yoke on people instead of allow them to just experience the goodness of same-sex unions? And I said, actually, it's worse for you because you're assuming I get to heaven. <laughs> First Corinthians 6 places those who practice same-sex sexual behavior in the category of those who will not enter the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not looking at you with a double standard because there's other things listed in 1 Corinthians 6 that give me serious pause about how I'm living my life. But since we're talking about this topic, mm -hmm. same-sex behavior is placed there. And also sexual immorality in Galatians chapter 5, also Paul says in the category of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. So in that sense, it is not just a secondary issue. And it's a first-tier issue tied to uh, a gospel issue. But second, I said, I think it's also worse for you because the primary metaphor that God uses to teach his church, to teach the world about his love for the church is marriage. A one man, one woman, one flesh, one lifetime. It's in the beginning in Genesis, all the way through the prophets. An example of faithlessness to God is compared with uh, divorce and infidelity in a marriage. Jesus talked about it. Paul talked about it. It's in the Ten yeah. Commandments. Three of them assume natural marriage. And the Bible yeah. ends with a marriage. I said, I think it's worse for you because you are distorting the primary relationship God is using to teach his love for the church. So it's a gospel issue, but it's also at the heart of who God is, how he's called us to live in relationship, and how we understand his love for us to the world through marriage better get it right. Is it possible that Jesus just got it wrong? Like in Matthew 19, he had the perfect opportunity to clarify what his views were on marriage. And that's, I think this is a really powerful idea, Sean, that all throughout the Bible, the metaphor that is marriage and sexuality, how it is used, that's, that's a really powerful idea. Is it possible that Jesus got something wrong here? that he had a limited understanding and couldn't conceive of the kinds of relationships that people are seeking today. Was he wrong? Was he ignorant? Did, what, how do you, how do you, what do you do with Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, for example, when he offers that clear teaching on what marriage is and he roots it in creation, right? From the beginning, this is how God designed it. How do you, what do you do with Jesus? Or have you had people that have a good answer to what you do with Jesus's view in Matthew 19. So when you ask the question, is it possible that Jesus got it wrong? I'd say to my atheist friends, I'd say, sure, it's possible. Anything is possible. Maybe Jesus wasn't God. Maybe the scriptures are not translated accurately. Those are logical possibilities we have to entertain, but I reject them because I think the scriptures are reliable. And I think we have clear evidence that Jesus claimed to be God and did the kind of things and said the kind of things that God did. Now, if someone's going to say they're a Christian and Jesus got it wrong, that's a whole nother problem how they're going to work that into their theology. To me, they've clearly stepped outside of the Christian camp and are embracing a different worldview. So, uh, look, the scriptures, uh, again, are clear from the beginning. And if 
we have them translated right, Jesus, I've, I've been reading Revelation, and it says over and over again, he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Lamb who was crucified before the foundation of the world. So it's not possible that Jesus is God, and he couldn't anticipate where culture is going and effectively deliver a book that would help us sufficiently address marriage. So I don't give that a ton of credence. I wouldn't, I, I haven't heard good responses to this. I mean, it's interesting when Jesus asked about marriage in Matthew 19, what does he do? He says to the Pharisees, he says, have you not read? Not read. And I love it because clearly the Pharisees had, so had he's poking read, at right. their area of pride. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. when he says mm-hmm. this, he's pointing back towards the creation account as being normative still in his day and beyond. By the way, I think Leviticus 18 does this, and I think Paul does this in Romans 1 as well. This consistently pointing back towards the creation account. And he cites Genesis 1, God made them male and female. And he cites Genesis 2, man leaves his father and mother, clings to his wife, and two shall become one. What's interesting is to answer the question about divorce, again, Matthew 19, all Jesus had to cite was Genesis chapter 2. But he goes out of his way to cite Genesis chapter 1. I know there's other purposes for this, but I think Jesus is very clear that minimally marriage is a sexed institution that requires male and requires female. There are no positive examples in scripture of marriage not minimally being a union of one man and one woman. And all other kinds of sexuality are condemned outside, not sexuality, all kinds of sexual behavior are condemned outside of that. I think that what you're talking about, Sean, is so key because often wrapped up in conversations about sexuality are things like one's culture and cultural conditioning and how things aren't the same. But I don't know what you do with Jesus's argument when it's rooted in Genesis. He roots his argument for sexuality and marriage in God's creative intent. I I don't know what you do with that. And for those that want to follow Jesus and have a high view of Scripture, I, I don't know. I don't know what you what you do with that. So I think that's very helpful to point out for all listening that have confusion on this topic, considering the teachings of Jesus and where he grounds his teachings in, I think can provide a lot of clarity, a lot of clarity on this issue. Amen. One of the most popular arguments, I think, when you ask somebody to ground their view in sexuality, like what is a grounding for your view on sexuality? You've kind of touched on this with a lot of stuff you've said, but how would you go about answering the objection when somebody says, well, consent is my grounding for sexuality and only consent. How do we respond to that? I would probably come up with an example of a sexual behavior that we know is wrong in which somebody consents to it. So I might say, well, what if a 12-year-old consents to have sex with an adult? And they'd say, well, that's not right. I'd say, okay. So assuming you can see that, then it's not merely consent, it's consent and age. Okay, good enough. So now we know it's not just consent, we've got to add other factors. So now I want to ask, what other factors then are okay and good and permissible when it comes to sexuality? 
And some people's moral intuitions today are pretty broken, but you could come up with an example that says, what if somebody consented to being raped? And this happens. There's pornography that portrays this. It's more common than you would think. Does that make it okay? I mean, we stop people from, if they say, I'm consenting to take my own life, we go and stop them from doing so because we don't think somebody's choice is supreme in taking their own life. So why would we do it there? But we wouldn't when somebody says, I'm going to consent to let you just destroy my body and humiliate me. Consent is important when it comes to sex. God designed that there would be consent. But it's such a minimalist understanding that it fails to capture the goodness of what sex is meant for. And frankly, all you got to do is look in California and you can begin to see how foolish this is. Some of the laws that are passed, like you have to give consent verbally or written at different points and in different times throughout the sexual episode. I'm like, this is what happens when you just make it about mm. consent. It destroys the goodness and purpose of what sex is meant to be in the first place. Not to mention all you need is a fake contract to get off the hook if something does well, go wrong. Yeah, you can say, well, the person was drunk anyways, and you made him do it. Mm -hmm. And and again, consent is vital. You should not have sex if there's not consent. But so much more is involved than merely just consent that our society has lost. Go ahead, Mike. Go ahead. I don't have a question. Now, now I the keep thinking. one time he had nothing. <laughs> now I keep. What's so funny is now I'm I... sitting here. I'm sitting here and I'm trying to be. I'm like, all right, I'm not going to ask a question here. That's what I I'm did. Being a mic hog here. And the one time I pause, that's where Nick, you're like, hey, where are you at, man? Golly. I'm. That's what I'm I was really doing. I was thinking, you know what? Mike's going to ask a question. So let me just wait till he asks a question. And then, all right, I'll just. Well, I had something then. in mind. I mean, I talk all day. Consent is such a, a dangerous. Uh, you put it well. I mean, it cannot be by itself because one, we get people to do things against their consent when we know they ought to do it. Moreover, mm. you can manipulate somebody to give their consent. So it can. You're, you're just exactly right. And I, I think this is. There's a level of intuition where people all get this. They all they all get this. They know it's not consent alone. It's consent plus something. And again, man, that's just a really helpful way to bring clarity to this issue, um, and and help people sort out their you know again, people I think have a north star on this issue, even with consent, and that's just a very helpful way to for people to get their bearings and get, get a little more clarity on this issue. No, it's a common criticism of Christianity, I think, that the church focuses too much on homosexuality as though it's the only sin. Um, and in my experience, it, it actually seems that the majority of Christians I know personally are afraid to even bring up the topic of homosexuality to any degree. And while there are certainly believers who have misused and abused this issue, I'm not denying that, um, do you think there is a danger in this sort of thinking? Well, on the contrary, it seems that homosexuality, as well as other sexual sin, has not been recently treated so much as the unforgivable sin, but rather the untouchable sin, where believers are, are criticized for having views that differ from the culture. How do you, how do you see these two uh, these two things that c contrast each other. I, I'm somewhat torn on this because I have seen a double standard when it comes to homosexuality at times in the church. Personally, with people, 
that pick out this sin and make an example of it that they don't gossip or divorce or mm-hmm. others. So I've even told people, I, I, I've told them, I said, if you go forward with this policy, you are fulfilling what those looking at the church say that we're homophobic and have a double standard on this sin. Now, how rampant that is, I don't know, but I've seen it enough to give me pause and say, you know what? We need to look in the mirror first and make sure that we aren't the ones saying this is the abominable sin and that we aren't being hypocritical. With that said, I think the church as a whole is not the one who's been raising the issues of the nature of marriage, has not been pushing the sexual revolution. The church has largely been playing defense. So I didn't want to talk about same-sex marriage. I wasn't planning on writing on LGBTQ. Do you know how much hate mail I've gotten and continue to get on a daily basis? And I Hmm. try to approach it as graciously as I can. I keep telling my wife, I'm like, this is the last time I'm writing something on this. This is the last time I'm talking. I am moving on. I'm moving on. And these bad ideas keep cropping up. And I'm like, gosh, I've got to address this. I've got to talk about this because nobody else is going to. So I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how to tell you if it's 60-40, but I can tell you the church, we have stuff to work on and be more consistent. But the culture is pushing certain ideas and agendas, and the church is also having to play a lot of defense. Yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. <clears throat> the It's disingenuous for someone to criticize the church for talking too much about this when sexuality is the topic of the day, as if we are the ones alone saying, hey, let's talk about this. That's true. Hey, so I know we're, we're short on time here. What, just in that category, then kind of laying in this plane or whatnot, what, what maybe are some common mistakes you think Christians make in engaging in this kind of conversation? And what are just some guiding principles to... Uh, just some guiding principles for respectful and loving conversations on this topic. Very broadly speaking, I see Christians make one of two mistakes. Either they're like, I'm God's prophet and I'm going to speak truth. And if that hurts your feelings, that's on you because it's God's word. Like speaking truth without love, without compassion doesn't help. On the flip side, I see a lot of Christians who are embarrassed by and not confident in biblical teaching on marriage and sexuality, don't really understand what the scripture teaches, don't understand why. So they buy this cultural narrative that maybe the loving thing to do is to kind of soften biblical teaching. Both of those are a mistake. We need people to speak the truth, but do it in love. Now, with that said, does that mean I look for people and I just speak truth every moment? No, actually, believe it or not, when I have conversations on this, I spent a lot more time listening than I do speaking. I was speaking with the head of a, a large marriage conference to their staff, and they do weekend marriage events. And he said to me, he goes, hey, if a same-sex couple came to our event and you had like two minutes to make a case for natural marriage, what would you do? I said, I wouldn't. I just listen. I just show kindness. Hey, thanks for coming this weekend. Do you feel like you've been treated fairly? What's one of the main things that you've learned? Uh, why did you decide as a same-sex couple to come to a conservative event? Like, I'm curious, and I'm going to show generosity to them. And then you, if we have two full days of teaching, we better make the case through example and scripture what the nature of marriage is. So the Bible has a lot to say about, I mean, James says, 
you know, he's very clear about listen before you speak. The Proverbs have a ton to talk about understanding before you aim to be understood. So I would love to see Christians firm on Scripture and speak that truth, but just do it with a posture of kindness and understanding that's not threatened by the outside world. So many times our voice, you know this, Mike, is we're afraid of critical race theory. We're afraid of Muslims. We're afraid of postmodernism. We live in fear of the LGBTQ community. This We have a posture of fear. 1 John 4, 18 says, perfect love casts out fear. Above all else, we should be motivated by love, which is to speak truth with kindness. Now, my last question to you before we wrap this up is, let's say somebody's listening to this show right now, either on radio or podcast, or let's say we get into a conversation with someone this week who is struggling with same-sex attraction. Now, what what could we offer them in terms of encouragement and in, in maybe in terms of putting a pebble in their shoe to make them think about Christ? So this is a non-Christian struggling with same-sex attraction. A non-Christian. You know, look, to me, when it's all said and done, I'm not going to camp on the issue of same-sex attraction. We all have desires and attractions that don't line up with God's design for how we're supposed to live. And I'm not putting those on the same experiential level. I'm just saying that's the way we're wired because we believe in original sin. If I'm talking with somebody with same-sex attraction, I'm probably not going to approach them any differently than somebody who doesn't. I'm going to talk to them and try to find a way, if I can, to get to the heart of who Jesus is, his view of the world. Now, in particular, if somebody's a part of the LGBTQ community, one of the things that is appealing and powerful about Jesus is his love and his grace, his acceptance, and his care for people that were on the margins. So I'm going to highlight and talk about that, of course, without downplaying the truth of what Jesus taught. I would never compromise that. But I just, with anybody, if it's an evangelistic conversation, I want to get them to the person of Jesus. Now, with that said, if somebody asks me straight up, hey, what does the Bible say about LGBTQ relationships or same-sex marriage? You got to give a grace-filled, truthful response. Beckett Cook shares this story where he was in Hollywood and he was just, I mean, he he knew a lot of people in Hollywood and he was sitting there seeing people having a Bible study in downtown LA and he asked them straight up, hey, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? And they gave him a truthful response. So we need to speak truthfully, but I'm not going to camp on that issue if I have to uniquely. I want to get to the person, to the heart of who Jesus is, because if there's a God who loves us and has designed us to live a certain way, they're only free and experience the abundant life if we abide in him. Amen. Amen. Well, Dr. Sean McDowell, thank you so much again for joining Mike and I here. Uh, your book is going to be available, available, what is it, July 5th, A Rebel's Manifesto? July 5th, that's right. Yep. Right after the revolution of July 4th, you can pick up a copy and lead your own rebellion for Jesus. I just made that yes. up on the spot. That was not planned. <laughs> well, maybe good. we can clip that and use it as a commercial. Well, <laughs> Sean, thank you so much again for joining us. Look out for that book. There is a wide range of topics in that book. We'll have to get you on later on to, to talk about some more of those. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. You got it.
Well, thank you for joining us on The Universe Next Door. We hope that this episode has been both uh, informative and an encouragement to you. Hopefully, it's been helpful in a practical way. And we hope it's been helpful enough for you to share with somebody who might find this uh, helpful as well. So next week, make sure to join us for Kevin Sorbo. Monday and then Thursday, he's going to be followed by Max McLean from The Most Reluctant Convert, the new C.S. Lewis movie. So we're going to have a great week uh, next week on The Universe Next Door. Make sure to look out for those episodes. And we'll see you back here.